0: A Podcast One production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Ag Reminders. Looking towards the next 50 years of the provision of food and fibre, it's not just about the mass production of a commodity, but also the principles and the provenance of that production... And dairy is a standout example of an industry that abides by the principles of those three P's. In fact, due to a growing demand for our food safety and provenance, we've seen the Australian and New Zealand dairy industry now air freight whole milk and infant milk replacements into Asia despite their growing local production, and indeed our value added products like A2 milk. Yet, In Australia, the undervaluing of milk by our supermarkets to prices that are cheaper than water has been seen as a fatal blow by many of our dairy farmers. Dairy has indeed been quite contrary. So what is the future for our dairy production in Australia and New Zealand? Is it sustainable? Will it be attractive to up-and-coming young farmers? Does the future line milks perceived to be healthier and different to traditional milk? And is the dairy industry set to be one of the few agricultural industries set to attract new investment for its increasingly popular so-called niche products? To guide us through these issues, our AgriMinders are the leaders of two of the most successful milk companies in Australia, Bega Cheese and the A2 Milk Company. Our first Ag Reminder is Max Roberts. Mr Roberts is the acting chair of Bega Cheese and also former chair of Dairy Australia, the dairy industry peak research body. Long-standing dairy farmer Max has experience in both the commercial side of dairy production as well as the practical side as he's been on the board of Bega Cheese for over 30 years. Welcome to Ag Reminders, Max. Great to be here. Max, could we start with this global scene? Um, We have been massive exporters with New Zealand. New Zealand bigger than us, of course, but we're in the big game there. How, How did we ever get to that position? We're the most remote country in the world. Well, I
1: think we had a very efficient industry and that applies to both Australia and New Zealand and that created opportunities. And also, if you look at the domestic population or the domestic demand for dairy products in both Australia and New Zealand, it's pretty limited. So there had to be an export market created for the production that was uh, was being generated. And we go back a few years when it was over 11 billion litres and the domestic markets say about 2 billion. So that's in Australia. So there was a pretty big uh, surplus of domestic production that had to be sold overseas. And we did very well. History will, I think, look back on... The Australian dairy industry, it was innovative, had the right sort of products, uh, created the right demand, but above all, created the right perception in the marketplace. It was an Australian product. It was a New Zealand product.
0: And why was that important?
1: I think it was one of those growing consumer uh, perspectives that uh, the clean and green image, uh, the image of a big country in Australia's case, uh, lots of green fields in the case of New Zealand, totally different image to what you see in Asia or China or some of the the markets that we we went into and even the sophisticated markets in uh, and I refer to say Europe and US or Central America, they recognize that as well. And that image is still there.
0: Well, I was in China not long ago and I was speaking to a young lady there who was um, my translator and she was had just had a baby and she was spending $1,500 a month on Australia or New Zealand milk replacer, $1,500 a month and did not blink an eye, would not consider buying anything from Asia. Uh, in her view, it was worth that sort of money because of the fact she saw it as absolutely guaranteed to be safe. That's an amazing provenance Built up, how do we protect that? Yes, and it has to be protected.
1: Um, and the providence issue, and China's a great example, uh, it has a very a much, much bigger dairy industry than both Australia and New Zealand combined uh, 54, 55 billion litres of milk but it doesn't have the trust of the consumer. And you look back in history and say, well, the melamine incident uh, really was a disaster for that industry. And, um, uh, again, protecting ourselves from that sort of uh, reaction from consumers is paramount, and, and we work hard at it.
0: I noticed that the growth in total consumption of dairy products globally, 70% of that growth is going to be in India and Pakistan. Any reason for that, and how do we, how do we get our share out of that, or is that going to be done locally?
1: Well, I think that's going to be a challenge. The, the global market for dairy products is increasing at a rate of about 2% a year. So if production's under that 2%, it's probably good for pricing. If it's above, it's not good for pricing. But a lot of that has been driven by the development of those countries. We've seen it in China, for example, create a pallet for dairy products that wasn't there probably 20 or 30 years ago. Japan's another example that created a pallet for dairy products and we're finding that now with india and india has uh, the largest dairy industry in the world it's well protected not necessarily cow's milk it could be milk from other bovine animals as well but also interestingly it's a different market to other markets it's uh it's a fat market whereas you had china for example it was a protein market so it's a different driver in that space and adapting to that uh, change in emphasis is uh, is a challenge for any exporting uh, exporting country.
0: So traditionally, our exports from, particularly from New Zealand, but also from Victoria, have been in spray dried milk products, you know, dried powder, really, that they then reconstitute. Which you can sort of see the logic of that. That seems to be changing now. Why is that?
1: Well, absolutely, it's changing, and and it's changing because I suppose the uh, the base product is uh, skim milk powder. Uh, then you got whole milk powder. Uh, they're products that can be stored so easily handled, easily handled in a community that doesn't have refrigeration, for example. But these markets are becoming more and more sophisticated. Uh, there's there's greater wealth. You, you mentioned the infant formula and the spend in that space. That's only occurred in the last probably decade, even less. So what we're finding now is in Australia in particular, the, the processes are going for more value-add um, probably consumer packs of um, spray-dried products as an example. Uh, Going for the markets in Asia that uh, demand consumer packs in, instead of selling, selling cheese in 20 kilogram blocks, we're selling it in 250 or 1 kg blocks in the supermarket. So, this value adding process now is a is a real driver behind our industry and and a direction we'll keep following uh, for the next two or three decades.
0: So at farm level, uh, I, I know when I my first dairy farm I worked on, you know, all the cows had names and it was a ten stand swing over dairy, which is where the cows walk into a stall and you'd they'd share a set of cups and you'd swing from one to the other and. And, uh, you know, the best cows might produce a mid-lactation average of around 15 to 18 litres a day. Um, today, that cow probably wouldn't even make the cull. What, so how, how are we the, a lot of this production is now coming from more production per cow. How have we managed to do that?
1: I think we've got a range of farming systems in Australia and, and we can still go back to the smaller dairies that uh, still exist and, and still uh, uh, provide a good living. But more and more we're seeing the sophisticated dairy industry develop up and I, I must admit I have a very positive attitude about our industry because when you look at the technology involved, you look at the the farming systems that have been created, the productivity of that industry, it's a it's a pretty exciting industry to be in. I'd suggest eighty five to ninety percent of the cows are actually connected to a computer somehow. Uh, and that computer will be dr- uh, driving decisions around the amount of feed, the type of feed that cow gets. It will drive uh, the genetics of joining that cow. It will determine uh, what bull that cow should be joined to, the genetics behind that decision. It may well be a, uh, a sex semen, uh, so it's a heifer. And all this technology is, is now being used. And uh, I think it's also exciting a lot of young people as well and you can farm to the nth degree in knowledge about what you're actually doing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, the adaption rate needs to probably pick up, um, but it's happening.
0: So you say that, and yet on the other hand, I'm always hearing of these terribly sad stories of young, vibrant farmers leaving the industry because they just don't think it's got a future. Um, that's a sad thing. Why is that happening and how can we stop that? I think
1: one thing the dairy industry has done very well is denigrate itself. Uh, it's publicised all the negatives and spoken about that. that. But there's, a, a, there's a, a strong group, a significant group of dairy farmers that are, that are out there doing the job. Okay, there will always be ups and downs around droughts and around water supplies and so on. But the adaption of that sort of technology is still there and still happening. And I can go around dairy meetings and people say there's no young people in our industry. There are young people in our industry. Uh, They do see a future in our industry. The real trick is keeping those young people in the industry. There is a wealth creation process that they can see. uh, If they work hard, that that will come. Unfortunately, uh, some of the negative publicity and, in fact, some of the reality uh, has put some stress into that, that thinking. But no, uh, there are a lot of young people there. As I say, it's a matter of keeping them there.
0: That's true, but you've also got big companies like Fonterra in New Zealand who are financially having a bit of strife at the moment. They just announced a bit of a loss and, uh, you know, they've, they're trying to sell down debt. So there's a squeeze coming there for them. They've, on one hand, the farmers are not happy with the money they're getting and on the other hand, they're not happy with what they're getting. Where, where is the future going to come out financially?
1: Yes, I think that is a big question mark for the industry and uh, you're right, is going through a bit of financial stress but we've also had it here in Australia. And if you think about it, the processor is virtually in the middle between the farmer who we're trying to keep in business and uh, and this competition for his milk supply and then the market that's driven by uh, wanting the cheapest product possible. So the bloke in the middle is actually the processor. And we've got some good examples in Australia where... That pressure has been too great. You take the Dairy Farmers Cooperative, uh, you take Bonlac uh, that was eventually sold to Fonterra and, of course, a very recent example of, of Murray Goulburn. Uh, some of that's around very bad decision-making and bad governance, um, but... The meat in the sandwich is certainly the processor and uh, they've got to be pretty quick on their feet to to stay in business.
0: So the supermarkets now talking about Australian production because a lot of the whole milk goes to Australian consumers uh, and there's been a lot of publicity about a dollar a litre milk being really the destruction of the industry. Why isn't the cost of that borne by Coles and Woolworths as part of their marketing costs? Why do the farmers have to pay for that?
1: The dollar a litre milk became a focus for the industry to highlight the pressure being applied by the supermarkets. Uh, The actual impact commercially perhaps wasn't as great as the industry made out because uh, it only applied to a small number of dairy farmers in 8.5 billion litres, a relatively small amount of milk. But what it did do is create a a huge morale dump. In other words, it just sort of said to dairy farmers, my milk is not valued. Um, and that's that's where the real hurt occurred in that space. But then you look at the consumer reaction when that milk was increased by 10% in the supermarket. Now, if any other supermarket line went up in uh, by 10% in one grab, that it would be on the front pages of most papers. But when that milk went up, there wasn't a murmur. And now we've got Coles, for example, going out and getting direct supply off farms and paying what they see as a big price for milk. Now, how's that going to That's
0: only just started, though, hasn't it? What, what, how's that going to go?
1: Well, it's only, a, again, a small amount of milk and a small number of dairy farms. So the impact uh, on the national dairy industry is zilch. Uh, but again, it does show that the supermarkets can, if they want to, pay a hell, hell of a lot more for milk. Um, and why they don't, and why they use it as a lost leader in their supermarkets is pretty deflating for our industry. And, and it's not just milk. It's uh, cheese and it's other dairy products. Um, for example, I supplied or supplied a cheese company, and we're seeing our product being sold on special down sort of 6 or $7 a kilo. Now, back in uh, litre terms, that's about 60 or $0.70 cents a litre that was returning... Uh, Uh, after it's been processed, put into packaging and and delivered.
0: There's been lots of marketing campaigns with milk to try and make them niche products. Some of them, I think, spurious in terms of data, and I would would use the example of permeate-free milk. I I found that to be quite ridiculous because permeate is milk. But uh, nonetheless, are we becoming very dependent on these niche products for, for growing the market?
1: Certainly for premiums we are and good on the processes for developing those premium markets and we shouldn't scoff at that as, a, as an industry because that's what it's all about the consumer demands uh, knowledge about what they're buying and those premium uh, products uh, provide the consumer with what they're they're looking for i think the best example is a2 milk um, there may well be uh, some question marks about the science but the perception that's created And the consumer reaction to that has been phenomenal and it's created a a really good premium product um, that's not enjoyed by everybody in the dairy industry but it just demonstrates what can be done.
0: Um, Again, you know, a lot of these perceptions are what I would politely call data-free opinion rather than anything based on science. Um, I, I always think it's dangerous to base whole markets on things which really don't have any scientific basis.
1: There are some vulnerabilities about doing that, I'm, I'm sure. Um, I'm involved in a company that um, has a good brand in Bega, and uh, uh, again, you've got to pr- protect that, that perception that people have about, about your brand and not make uh, outlandish claims about what it can and can't do. Uh, that's longevity. Mm.
0: So let's just talk a little bit about Bega cheese or Bequa as it was originally registered because I don't think you're allowed to use a city name in your trademark. So everyone's always called it Bega cheese, but it was actually it was actually registered as B-E-Q-A with a Q looking like a G. Yeah, we've fixed that up now. It's uh, now officially Bega So it's had quite an interesting history because it's a company that's been quite entrepreneurial in the way they've approached the market, not only in milk, but sort of got around all sorts of other products like Vegemite and all sorts of other things. What's been the success of Bega Cheese?
1: Well, I have been on the board for 36 years and the change I've seen has just been enormous. We started off as a small cooperative uh, based in Bega. Uh, It's a result of merging two or three or four other cooperatives in that area and gradually developed up. Uh, I can remember... The early days of the bigger brand when it was decided that uh, we'd increase the price by 20 cents a, a kilo and put that aside for uh, promotion. Well, that went well, so we decided we'd go another 20 cents and created a uh, a pool of funds that allowed us to go onto television.
0: So have you really got involved in exporting uh, products as a deliberate target um, you know as as a company
1: Over time we did, but our, the domestic market was our first goal, and that generated the the brand and the, I suppose the scale around Bega. Mm. and over time um, we've been able to to take on debt and to expand our business. And above all, uh, recognize and take up opportunities. And uh, that's happened with uh, the Tachirubai, uh, Strathmerton, which was the big craft factory we bought into. Coburg, we bought that. It was a, a pretty stressed asset at the time. And mm. uh, that seemed to, seems to be a general theme, uh, looking at stressed assets.
0: So there are a number of big players here now. We've got Fonterra, which is a massive global player. We've got now Saputo, a Canadian company, which has bought into Victoria by buying Murray Goulburn. And that's really created a name here, but they've always been – they're a bit of a Johnny-come-lately company, I guess. But on the other hand, they're a major player now. And then, of course, you've got Bega and Norco, um, you know – are between them is their future really in improving exports or is their future in fighting each other for the local market
1: I think there's a couple of other companies you can add to that list as well lactalis uh, it's a global company uh, critical mass much much bigger than bes I can assure you and of course lion dairies the the Japanese company that's now trying to sell their Australian assets uh, Saputo, an interesting customer to come into Australia through when they First bought uh, Warrnambool and then, of course, the Murray Goulburn Assets. And uh, they're a uh, company centred out of Canada, um, assets in South America, US, and now Australia, and uh, a pretty responsible company and I think a good one for uh, the Australian dairy industry. Uh, Fonterra, they took over the Bonlac Assets when it ran into trouble and uh, I, I think struggled a little. Um, in that it did a couple of things that annoyed some of its suppliers. Uh, With the Murray Goulburn step-down, they followed suit. Uh, Other companies didn't. But uh, they've also got some very good assets. But as with all the the companies in Australia, the the assets are there, but uh, perhaps not enough milk to go through them to give them uh, really good returns.
0: And all these companies going to get into exporting whole milk in planes?
1: Yeah, good question. And uh, I think this will be about technology more than anything else. Certainly, there is a demand for that sort of product, um, natural whole milk as opposed to UHT milk, in the high end markets in Asia, uh, the five star hotels, and, and so on, where price really isn't an issue. It's all about uh, supplying what people expect in those sorts of uh, consuming areas.
0: So there, there is a new technology called Naturo coming on which is supposed to be able to give you a much longer shelf life but without using heat. Is that going to be the future of whole milk exports, do you think? Well,
1: could be. And um, there, there's certainly extended shelf life, uh, ESL. Uh, that's, that's another way of doing it. Uh, the other way of doing it is actually... Um, putting it, chilling it right down to one or two degrees in special uh, shipping containers, shipping it across and actually pasteurizing in the country where they need to sell it. It, It's a slow growing market, uh, but when you look at the population, you look at the tourist industry, you look at the five-star hotels and the growing demand from a, a population that's increasing in wealth, huge opportunity.
0: So could I bring you now to animal welfare? That's been a part of all animal industries in Australia, which has preoccupied a lot of time and a lot of thinking time. How is the dairy industry handling that and where is that going to go in the future?
1: I think the subject's actually much broader than just the animal welfare side of it. It is about that community licence to operate. It's about animal welfare. It's about the industry using community assets. And the big one there, of course, is water, and the land we actually farm off. So there's a growing demand by the community for us as an industry to justify the use of those assets. Animal welfare is obviously one, and it's been uh, top shelf, not just here in Australia, but globally. And it revolves around bobby calves, about the health of animals, about the treatment. So just
0: explain bobby calf, what's a bobby calf? Oh, sorry. A calf
1: uh, is born, female calves are normally kept, and the male calves are sold. They have to be uh, at least five days old before they can be sold, and there's a very strict code of conduct in treating those calves before they end up at the abattoir. Um, But uh, they're consumed as small goods, and um, uh, there's quite well a demand for those sorts of calves. But, for example, technology around sex semen, where you get more female calves than male calves, and, and that's a good example of uh, the issue around, I suppose, the one obvious animal welfare issue that we do have, and that's around those small calves, that you can then get science to address the issue as well. And the adaption rate of sex semen has been a very positive thing in handling that issue. But I've, I've got to say, as somebody that's milked cows twice a day for quite a few years, uh, you get very attached to them. And I think one of the hardest things I had to do uh, when I sold the farm was actually sell the herd because uh, you do know them. They do have personalities. so, uh, And those personalities can result in a, in a big lick up one side of your face or a, a real good kick uh, from the other one next to it. So, uh, you know, you develop an affinity and that affinity is very, very strong in the dairy industry.
0: And, and, I mean, I remember the first lesson I learnt was that your ability as a cowman or a cowwoman was worth litres of milk per day whether that cow walked out of the dairy jill holding milk inside her or whether she let it all go was largely dependent on how good you were at making her feel comfortable and making her feel that she wanted to be milked and i think regardless of all the technology i don't think that's ever changed
1: not at all and you're absolutely right and you, you can actually look at the end of milking and somebody has milked, say three hundred cows and it takes ten minutes to hose the uh, the remnants out. If somebody has done it badly, it can take you an hour um, because uh, the cows do react. It's the old story too, about females milking cows, much, much better at sure. it than what we are as blokes.
0: I remember I was at one stage I was uh, uh, on the management team for the Emu Plains Correctional Centre Dairy for 20-odd years and it converted from being a male prison to a female prison. Now, these are itinerant prisoners, but that change, we saw a massive increase in milk production. Uh, both of them didn't know anything about dairying, but the females just seemed to be that, be that much better at actually encouraging those cows to leave their milk. But we're now moving to technologies where the cows come up and milk themselves more or less when they feel like it. They don't even, they're not hunted into a dairy and milked and then hunted out again. Um, is that going to be widespread, do you think? Is that the way of the future? Yes,
1: it'll take again some time for adaption, but uh, robotic milking is is certainly on the, the dairy agenda now. Well, and truly, we've got a big one just outside of Bega and two or three others at Dairy Australia were involved in that science. And you're right, the cow makes up her own mind as to when she's milked and, Instead of being milked, say, twice a day, she might decide she wants to be milked two or three times a day. Uh, that's okay. Um, <laughs> I think the best indication, most of the robotic dairies have a, a, a brush, a fairly stiff brush that revolves when the cows walk out. And the idea of that brush is that the, the cows love their backs being scratched, so they'll uh, rub up and down against this brush and those brushes wear out fairly consistently in a in a couple of weeks and need replacing, and it's happy cows, uh, and that makes a big difference. I think robotic uh, robotic milking has a real place, and we'll see it uh, have a bigger place in the future.
0: So, Max, you've just sold your farm. Why did you do that, and and what's the feeling of uh, the young person who's bought it from you?
1: Yeah, why did I sell it? Uh, I suppose we've got to face reality. We all become ex-dairy farmers at some point in time, in some form or another. But um, no, it's, the age starts with a seven now. Uh, my family, uh, through education, have found their own lives and uh, the, the family decision was not to keep it, uh, that we would sell it. And I must admit there were many conversations on the boundary between myself and my next-door neighbour over time working out, you know, where that dam could go or where that irrigation could go. And uh, we spoke about this in uh, on and off, and finally uh, it had to happen. And the point I'd like to make, though, it's been sold as a dairy farm, and it's, it's going to get new energy, uh, new capital put into it, and it's going to take it to the next level. What
0: uh, is the next level? Oh, the
1: next level is probably doubling production, bettering the infrastructure around irrigation, the milking platform needs modifications or modernising, and going into this new world of technology that we have now. Uh, my dairy was 32 or 3 years old, um, needed expansion, getting very close to its use-by date, uh, needed new feeding systems. All these sorts of things were starting to build up on the on that farm. It'll take a little time, but... Uh, I can see it developing into a really nice farm.
0: So that expansion, is that going to be in cow numbers or is he going to keep pushing the, the yields and the genetics? All of the above. Um, I think in our area, there's a limit as to
1: what you can get a cow to produce before it becomes uh, an issue with uh, you know, heat stress and all those sorts of uh, welfare issues on a cow. So it's probably going to be cow numbers and that's will be driven by the available of Availability of natural feed, and that's then driven by the amount of water that's available to to irrigate that land. Um, so th- there's lots of drivers in uh, the ultimate numbers. But when I first bought that dairy, it milked uh, what a hundred and two or three Jersey cows, uh, and without increasing the the size of that dairy, it got up to three hundred. That was all in thirty five or six years. Uh, And again, these stories are in the dairy industry everywhere, as as people have expanded. Some people don't sort of look back and recognise the the progress they've made in the industry and the technologies they've taken on board or the productivity increases that are there. And I don't think a lot of dairy farmers recognise the wealth they've created in their own farms. Uh, And that is an important thing to sit down probably every 12 months and say, how am I going? Have I done a good job this year? Is my farm better than it was 12 months ago? And am I creating that wealth that I need uh, uh, for my future? I think those reflective moments need to be had in any industry and more particularly the dairy industry.
0: And what's the biggest challenge your new owner will face, do you think, in his next 20 years? Uh, Good question,
1: but uh, I think he needs to uh, make sure he's got a stable base Um, and uh, that stability is around debt levels and so on and funding and financing the capital restructure is an important part of it, but uh, he'll do it.
0: But what about the actual production and methodology of producing milk in in Australia? What big challenges do you think he's got ahead of him there?
1: Well, there'll certainly always be a demand for milk in Australia and for the export market. Uh, The challenging point there is what price will that demand be at And I think we're in a a fairly good space. The uh, domestic market is consuming more and more. Uh, We have lost a lot of the premiums out of that domestic market and I think they have to be regained. The export market will undulate or uh, have peaks and troughs in it, but uh, every farming system has that issue. It doesn't matter whether it's dairy or beef or cotton or whatever. And being able to handle those, but what you need is a farming system that is adaptive and has the ability to get through those uh, changes. Uh, Might just not all be about price. It could be about droughts, uh, demands on water, uh, grain demands, whole range of issues, but you can adapt to those if if you've got a good base.
0: Well, thank you very much, Max, for being our AgriMinder today. I think you've been a fantastic combination of the high end of actually in the real world delivering milk products globally right down to actually producing the milk yourself. And you've had the full range of experience. What better person to really try and teach us about where that dairy industry is going. So thank you very much for being a part of AgriMinders. Enjoyed it. So we've heard from Max Roberts that the key to marketing our dairy products successfully has been our communication of its safety and its prominence. And that indeed new manufactured dairy products may in fact be the life raft that saves dairy processors from either closing down or selling off their assets. Which brings us to the success of the A2 Milk Company. Not only is a dairy company defying the odds, but also as a company listed on the Australian New Zealand stock markets. With a highly profitable turnover of over a billion dollars, the A2 Milk Company has defied the negative trends in the Australian dairy industry and has grown to be one of the largest companies in Australia and New Zealand. Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.